so that makes our title this morning. Who is this King of Glory? June 2nd, 1953, a procession was taking place through the streets of London. Uh, London. Elizabeth uh, was being coronated as queen. Um, she had seen a coronation before when she was 11 years old, when her father, King George VI, was coronated in 1937. So 16 years later, it became her turn to make the trip through the streets of London to Westminster Abbey where coronations had taken place for the previous 900 years. Elizabeth was a young 27-year-old. Eight majestic horses pulled the golden stagecoach. Throngs of people packed the streets trying to get a glimpse of the new queen. Another 27 million tuned in via the television set, which was a new thing. At the time, in the United Kingdom, there were only 36 million people, 27 million of them were viewing this procession on the television. First, the first coronation ever to be televised. The glory of the royal family was on full display. During the procession, Her Majesty the Queen wore the King George IV state diadem crown. This crown was made in 13, oh, excuse me, 1820. On this crown is 1,330 diamonds, 169 pearls. She will then, that's for the procession, she will then um, go into Westminster Abbey where she will sit in St. Edward's chair. Made for Edward the first in 1300. At which time she will transition and she will wear St. Edward's crown. This crown was placed on her head weighing four pounds, 12 ounces, made of pure, solid gold. The Cullion diamond, that's the diamond there in the middle. This is the Cullion one diamond. How many of you, on your finger, think for a minute, you probably have a carrot. You might have a carrot, half carrot, maybe you have two carrots, maybe. You got some carrots on your ring. The Colian one diamond, just just that diamond, three thousand one hundred six point seven five diamond um, carats. I repeat, because I stumbled. Three thousand one hundred six point seven five carat diamond, valued today at over four hundred and ninety five million dollars. Just that diamond. We won't talk about the other jewels on that crown. Actually, Kim and I got to see that crown in the Tower of London just a few months ago. Yay wow. is right. Lots and lots of royal glory going on here. 
But who was this Queen Elizabeth in 1953, before the days of Twitter and Instagram? I checked, I checked this morning. Queen Elizabeth does have a, quit, a Twitter account. Before the days of social media, before the days of carrying the news in your pocket. Of such glory. You're standing in the crowd with the millions of people who have gathered to get a glimpse of the 27-year-old new queen of England. And you have that nagging question, but who is she? What makes her so special of such attention and such pomp and circumstance and wealth? We don't really know her. She's receiving all of this attention simply because she was born into a certain family. But who is she and what great things has she done in her 27 years? Well, Psalm 24 contains kingly glory. And the psalmist asks the question two times over, who is this king of glory? If you're new to Trinity this morning, we welcome you. Thank you for being here. We're in a mini-series of the Psalms. During the summer, we usually try to cover some of the Psalms. And this year, in particular this summer, we've been covering Psalms of Lament. And so we covered Psalm 27, and then we covered two weeks on Psalms 51. And as Alex and I were discussing just this little mini-series, as we were talking about it, we felt it would be good in covering Psalms of Lament to close with a Psalm of Rejoicing. To, if you will, take the lid off of our worship. That's why we find ourselves here in Psalm 24. Next week, we'll be back in James. Uh, we will wrap up the book of James over the next month. After that, we'll do a mini-series on the church of three weeks. After that, Isaiah. Here we go. Coming to a church near you. <laughs> so that's where we're at. I want to dive right in to... I only have two points for us this morning. The first one being this, the twice-repeated question. Let's look again, verses 8 and 10. Verse 8, who is this king of glory? Verse 10, who is this king of glory? The whole psalm is marching to answer that question. The Psalm 24 lives to give you a picture. Who is this king of glory? Why such pomp and circumstance? Why is there glory even? We can, I don't know about you, but I've read Psalm 24 quite a few times. Comes right after Psalm 23. You're familiar with Psalm 23. You roll right into Psalm 24. If you're like me, I've read the question a number of times and I've thought nothing of the question. I want to slow us down this morning because this is, after all, the question of all questions. This is the question of the ages. 
This is the question, whether you're aware of it or not, you're answering this question today, this morning. This is not only the question of the Old Testament, it was the question of the New Testament. It sounded a little different. It's Jesus speaking to his disciples and he's saying to them, who do you say that I am? It's the same question. It's the same question for us today. It's the question the church must answer. It's the question the family must answer. It's the question each of our hearts must answer. It is the question that is being answered all the time, every moment, in every heart, every heart. Who is the king of glory? Who is it that deserves our affections? Who is this who deserves our attention and our worship? Who is this? Alex's sermon a few weeks back from Psalm 27. Who is this light and salvation in whom shall I fear? Who is it the last two weeks, Psalm 51, that David pours his heart out to, who creates in him, in me, in you, a clean heart? Who is this King of glory who invites us, Hebrews, into his very throne of grace? Who is that that you worship this morning? Who is it that you share about? Who is it that you discuss and talk about as you go to your community group and as a group you're talking about the Lord? Who is this King of glory? Who is it that you are devoted to, that you have set your mind and your heart upon? Well, to answer who is this King of glory, we kind of need to ask, what is glory? What is glory? The Bible has a lot to say about glory. It says the heavens declare it, that God is enthroned in it. It says that no man can really see it. Paul says that sinners fall short of it, that the angels came announcing it, glory to God in the highest. Moses says in, in Exodus 33, his great picture of the glory of God, he's saying to God, show me your glory. And God's response to Moses is, you, you cannot see my face. To, to see the full expression of the glory of God is to die. Exodus 33 records God's response. Behold, the Lord speaking to Moses, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, by, but my face shall not be seen. And so into the cleft of the rock, Moses goes and God covers him from the full display of his glory. And as the Lord's glory passes by, he removes his hand and it says that you'll see my back. I take that to mean that you will see where my glory once was. You will see the, the residual glory of God. You won't see the full extent of my glory. It's not as if God's saying you'll see my back. But you will see the the. The, the leftover glory where I once was, where I once passed by. So what is glory? It's renown. 
It is honor, majesty, magnificence. It is, it is the weightiness of worth, of value and splendor. But when we speak about the glory of the Lord, it's different than a crown, a coolian one diamond worth X amount of dollars. When we, when we speak about the glory of God, we're speaking about something intrinsic, which means we're, we're speaking about the very nature of who God is. We're speaking about the, we're, we're, what we're saying is God is glory. His being is what is glory. Intrinsic within himself is this value, this worth, this splendor, this glory. He is worthy because he is glorious because he is God. He is God. He is transcendent, meaning he is beyond all that is. Because all that is exists because he exists. Nothing exists if God does not exist. So he's transcendent. Meaning he's, everything that is, he's made, which makes him above all that is. He's beyond everything. He's beyond everyone because he made everything and he made everyone. And that really takes us to point two where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time. Point one is the twice repeated question. Who is this king of glory? Point two is a threefold reply that we'll find here in the Psalms. In the Psalm. The threefold reply begins with the answer to the question Who is the king of glory? He's the creator. Verse one The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Meaning, psalmist here is telling us everything and everyone belongs to God. Now, that's true. You might, not, you might be here this morning and you might reject that thought. Everything, everyone belongs to God. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. I want you to know that's true whether you reject it or not. It's not up to us to determine because we're the created thing. It's not up to the painting to determine or to say to the painter, I don't accept that you painted me. I deny you. The painting doesn't have such liberties. The painter painted and gave that painting its existence. Nobody is asking you or me to chime in on if it's true Created things don't determine if the creator is worthy. He is worthy. It's who he is. It's what he is. He is glory. 
He just is because he is. That's why he says to Moses, I am that I am. The creator of a thing is transcendently above the created thing. So to run with the picture or the, yeah, the illustration of the painting, the glory of a painting isn't the painting itself. It's the author who signed it. It's a Van Gogh. Well, a lot of people can paint in similar style and maybe even do a better job. But one sells at a garage sale for $15 and the other sales sells for millions based on my signature or Van Gogh's signature. You get it. creator of a thing is transcendently above the created thing. We are that painted thing. We are the created thing. And God, in his being of glory, ready, invites sinners who fall short of that glory to now come to him who is glorious. Who is this king of glory? This is why we give him all the glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen. He's the painter. We're the image bearers, meaning we are created, meaning we are painted by the master painter creator ready to reflect the glory of the Lord. We are not the glory. We point to the glory. We point to the one who is the glory who made us. Therefore, God does not need to convince us to worship him. He does not need to persuade us or manipulate us to worship him, it'd be more appropriate for us to say, he lets us worship him. He deserves our worship because he painted you and me onto the canvas of this world and he breathed life into us. He deserves worship because the painted thing, the created thing, rebelled against the creator. And so he sent his son into the world to make the created thing a new creation for his glory. He deserves our worship because he is. He created us. He lives. He is the king of glory. I don't worship God for what he can do for me. I worship him because he is glory. He is God. Listen closely. He does not need to do more for me. To then be worthy of my worship. He does not need to heal me. 
He does not need to answer me. He does not need to give me what I want. Nor to give me what I think I'm owed. He does not need to do for me. Christ is enough. He is glory. He is glory because he is God. He is the king of glory. I'm the created thing. I am the redeemed, and that's enough. I've been given life, and I've been given new life, and that's enough. He's the king of glory. I'm his. I belong to him. He owes me nothing. I have all that is needed in Christ Jesus. So praise him. Glorify him. He made you. He made me. We are his. What else needs to be said other than praise our God? I wrote somewhat of a prayer in my notes here. God, rid me of the prosperity gospel that lives in my heart. Rid me of the lust for more things that you can give me. Rid me of the desire to turn what is glorious into the genie of the bottle. The lust of what you can give me or what you can do for me as if to say, Christ, you're not enough. Rather than the purity of God, well, it was read earlier, Psalm 63. Earnestly, I seek you. Just the purity of I hunger for you. Just your presence, yourself, is enough. Do you know rocks get it? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people were crying out to him. A crowd had gathered for that procession and they're laying their cloaks down before him. My understanding of that is it's a, it's a symbolic thing to say we lay ourselves down on the ground and we let the donkey ride over us. Here's the procession. And while they're doing so, they're shouting out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees didn't like it. And they said to Jesus, actually, they demanded of Jesus. They didn't just say, demanded of Jesus, silence your people. Stop it. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Want to know why? Because rocks get it. Rocks get it. Pharisees didn't get it. The crowd will actually grow silent. So they're getting it for a moment. We often don't get it, but rocks get it. So do trees, Isaiah 55. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills, they get it, before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Hills and mountains and seas and trees and rocks, they get it. Meaning, they have it settled. I'm a rock. I'm a tree. I exist for the creator's glory. 
my very being as a rock, I was created for the glory of my maker. And rocks get it. Rocks know why they exist. The rock is not um, basing its glory of God based on what more could the creator do for me as a rock? I want something more. No, the rock understands it is what it is for the glory of the one who made him. The rock doesn't wonder why it couldn't be a more majestic rock. Maybe a boulder or something on a majestic scenery on a famous mountaintop, perhaps. If the rock could speak, it would say, I am here. I exist for the glory of the maker. I am created for your praise, your glory, because you're the king of glory. It's as if the rock knows, if it were a knowing being, it knows that it doesn't exist if it were not for the king of glory who made it to exist. If the rock could speak, I'm saying it is speaking. It's saying, I exist for the glory of God to be the rock that I am. And that's why, as a rock, I'm crying out my praises. Rocks and trees and oceans and mountains get it. They get the glory that they were created for. They understand that they're not the glory, that they're the painted thing. And that they were created to point to the one who painted them into existence. Just like the paint on the canvas They exist to point away from the painting to the one who signed it, the creator. They exist because the creator painted them into creation. Praise be to God. Now all of creation gets that. Minus one. People. People are the only ones who question their existence. Why do I exist? Why am I here? And we question our existence and we lust for the glory that is not ours. I want more. I want the glory on that mountaintop. I want what he has, what she has. We ask, who is this king of glory? The created thing begins to question his wisdom of things and why he painted the way that he did, which is ultimately a question of his glory. I don't like who he made me to be. I wish I I had his life, her looks, or his job. We covet and we lust for something more, something better. I want what she has. I want better than what I am or what I have. I want more. We don't get it like trees and rocks. I've asked God many times and I've not gotten what I want. And now I'm angry with God. I'm tired and I deserve better. Doesn't he recognize how righteous I've been, how good I've been living, how, how much my efforts recommend me before him? Doesn't he understand how hard I've been trying? Why won't he give me all that I'm asking for? 
And so I'm not sure anymore as the created thing. I think I will grow casual in my worship of him. I'm not so sure I want to serve him. I think I'll just be nonchalant in my pursuit of him. Who is this king of glory? Skip the gathering of his body, whom he calls the, his very own bride. The worship service, it's not all that convenient to me. Who is this king of glory? I will not give him myself I certainly will not give of my finances or my time or my energy. I'm not convinced about this king of glory. Why? Because I'm not a rock. I'm a thinking being. I'm enlightened. And unlike the, unlike the rock, I think I'm the glory. As for him, I'm not so clear on his intrinsic value, worth, glory. The creator is the creator. He's, he's the owner of the painting. He is the king of glory. So verse two, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Consider for a moment when God created, ready? We weren't there. Man was created on the sixth day, as if to say, I didn't ask you. <laughs> Not looking for your suggestions. Creation's done. And now I create man and woman. We kind of came late to the game. We're the created thing. He didn't need us, and he wasn't looking for our input. We're not participators in creation. We are created, thus we are the responders in creation. Image bearers, reflecting the glory of God. Rocks get it. Yes, we were created, created in the image of God, created with an ability to live and to lift our voices like no other creature God has made because he's the king of glory. Who is the king of glory? Well, the first thing Psalm 24 tells us, the creator, he's the king of glory. Second thing the Psalm tells us is Christ is the king of glory. Verse three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Psalms 24 is traditionally known as a song of ascension. There's a procession of sorts that are going on here. We'll dig into that in a moment. A song of ascension. Verse three, think of that as 
the goal. Ascending the hill of the Lord, standing in his holy place. That's the goal. Verse four, that's the standard. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Verse three is the goal. Verse four is the standard. Verse four, he who has clean hands. That's the outward, right? That's, the, that's a picture of the outward doing. And a pure heart, that's the inward, right? That's the motivation that drives the doing. He who has, a clean, who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't lift up his soul to what is false or to, 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 to false truths or to false gods, not lifting up his soul in idolatry. And does not swear deceitfully. It's what he, how he uses his mouth in truth and in, in honesty. One verse in the Bible. The question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, stand in his holy place? One verse undoes, <laughs> ruins me. One, it, it requires one verse in the Bible to lay us low. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Maybe initially we think, well, I can. Well, here's the standard. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceive it. One verse tells me, not you, not me. We have a problem. One verse in the Bible shows me you and I fall short of the glory of God. One verse, I failed miserably in one verse of the Bible. I don't need to read anymore to, be, to, to prove to me how miserably short I fall to the glory of God. How unable I am to ascend the holy hill of the Lord and stand before his holy presence. Would we dare to think, I can. I'll stand before the hill of the Lord. I'll, Moses can't even view his face. But actually, I think I'm getting verse four done. I got clean hands. I'm, my actions are pure and righteous and my heart, all my motivations are pure and righteous and I've never looked to anything that's false or spoken what is false. Be true to yourself and recognize every person in the room doesn't just fall a little bit short. We fall miserably short in one verse of the entire book. One verse, that's all it takes. Who can ascend? Not me. Well, this psalm, as do all psalms, as do all the Old Testament, as that's go to Josiah's class, Scarlet Thread, scripture that he read earlier, right? All of the Old Testament, all of the psalms, this psalm, 
It exists to point us to Jesus. Who is this king of glory? Who can ascend the holy hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, Christ. I'm not pretending that this is what Psalm 25 is teaching when I say Christ ascended the hill of Calvary. I just want to make note of that. Christ did some ascending in his time. At one point, he ascended the hill of Calvary and died, and he perfectly did one verse. No, actually, he did all the verses. But as it relates to this morning, in the one verse I can't get done, the standard, he fulfilled the standard perfectly. And because he did, the answer to the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Christ did. Now, listen closely. What I said earlier, I can't, actually wasn't the whole story. I can, you can, because he did. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, which means you have repented of your sins and you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you can, you are, not because you're meeting the standard, verse four, but because he met the standard, verse four, and all the other verses of the entire Bible on your behalf. Who is this king of glory? Christ is the king of glory who died for our sins, rose from the grave, and he ascended again. This time in front of his disciples, he ascended and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father where he is making intercession for you. He lives in the holy place. That place that we will one day go and we will stand, verse three, But we won't stand before his holy place presenting ourselves. I did verse four. We will stand in his holy presence saying, I have placed my trust in the son of God, Jesus Christ, my redeemer, my savior stood in my place. And because he did, I am to come, Hebrews tells us, with confidence to your throne of grace. We will stand. We will ascend. Not because of what we've done, but entirely, completely because of the work of Jesus Christ. Christ ascended the hill of Calvary he died in our stead. Verse five, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him. God sent his son to do and be, verse four, so we can do, verse three. 
He sent his son to be the clean hands and the pure heart, never turning to what is false, never swearing deceitfully, so that you and I, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Followers of Jesus Christ. Let's jump to He's the Conqueror. Verse 7 Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The creator, Christ, conqueror. It's traditionally thought that this Psalm, Psalm 24 of David, was written by David as he's coming into Jerusalem. Having returned from Obed-Edom's house, Significant? Yeah, because Obed-Edom, he'd been, he'd been storing the Ark of the Covenant. So now David and a crowd of his people have gone and they've, they've taken the, the Ark of Covenant and they're bringing it back into Jerusalem. In this song of ascension, that's what's going on here. And as they approach the city gates, it's said that verses 7 through 10 was this, this shouting, this dialogue that went back and forth from those who were outside the city gates, David and his gang with the Ark of the Covenant and the, the watchmen on the walls. And as they approached the city gates, they shouted, verse 7, Lift up your gates, your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Translated, open the gates. <laughs> We're here. We're bringing the ark with us represents the presence of the Lord. Hey guys, open the gates. The reply came from the watchman. Who is this king of glory? David doesn't reply. It's King David. It's your king. Open the gates. He replies, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, conqueror, king. The reply came from the city, from, from the, sorry, those outside the gate, they said again, so in light of who it is. Lift up your, ga your heads, O gates, 
and lift them up, O ancient doors. So they're just repeating, open the gates that the king of glory may come in. And the reply comes again from the watchman on the wall. Who is this king of glory? And the response, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. This wasn't for vanity. This wasn't for just repetition for repetition's sake. This was for power. It was an appropriate back and forth. The king of glory is at your gates. The presence, what represented the very presence of the Lord before his people has come. It's at the door. Open up the gates. Let them in. Usher in the presence of the Lord into the city gates. Open the gates. Bring them in. Bring them in. This is where we live. Bring them into where we live. We were a rebellious people and he removed his presence because we were stiff-necked and we refused the Lord God, the creator who made us. We were unfaithful people and the Lord removed his presence and all those years have taken, now his presence is coming back. Open the gates. Who is this king of glory? Oh, he's the creator, he's the Christ, he's the conqueror. Open up the gates to where we do life, where we live, where we reside. We want the presence of God living where we do life. There's amazing irony. Uh, I don't know if irony is the right word, but Christ, through his life and death and resurrection, invites us. Open the gates. Yes. Wow. Open the gates of your heart. See all that I've done to restore relationship with you, you're my people. This nonchalant, this casual, this indifferent, who is this king of glory? Oh, he's the king of glory. The sinner, the one who falls short of his glory is invited into his presence. Keep repeating Hebrews, it's in my head. Come with confidence, come with boldness into his throne of grace. Come before him, not because you're confident in yourself, not because there's anything about us that would, that would, about ourselves that would make you so arrogant that you'd be bold to come striving, striving your way into his holy presence. But now you come boldly, you come confidently because of the finished work of Christ on your behalf. The sinner is invited in the Psalms to enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. From the walls, they ask the repeated question, who is the king of glory? The procession replies the first time, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Well, hasn't he been? The Lord, 
the one who's conquered your sin and death, the Lord of which we sung of this morning. Oh, death, where is your sting? Why do we sing? Is it just because, I mean, certainly it's because it's in scripture, but, but, but that's the, the, the truth, the reality of which we live. Death, is this the best you got? Where is your sting? Who is this king of glory? Friends, if you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, then the question, verse three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Your answer is absolutely not me. No one will ascend the hill of the Lord, his holy place, his presence, outside of trusting in Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You need Christ the conqueror. Good news. The king of glory came to rescue us from our sins. We are too filthy. We are too clean. Be morally honest with yourself. Are you getting it done in your own efforts? Are you really? Who is this king of glory? Well, it's me. I mean, come on, look. I'm here. Open the gates. In all of my splendor, in all of my righteousness, in all of my good efforts of all of my days. I can't get a verse, one verse done. In Tim alone, my hope is found. The good news is you can be made clean in Christ and he climbed the hill for you. He ascended the hill for you and only he, only he, only he can make you clean. So how do you answer the question, who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, strong in battle, who defeats the enemy, our chief enemy, If you're not a follower of Christ, open the door, yes. lift the gates, yes. and see the King of glory. Worship team, if you would join me on the platform. Who is the King of glory? He's the creator. He's the Christ. He's the conqueror. He is the King of glory. It's who he is. It's intrinsic to his being. Now, what difference does it make? So what? Maybe you're thinking. What difference does that make in the lives of the follower of Christ? Or, you know me, I like to say, what difference does it make driving to work on Monday? Makes every difference. It literally affects how you drive to work on Monday. You might be here going, okay, Psalms 24 is true, but now what? Well, let me cast a big net, big broad net. It affects everything. That's as broad as I can get. <laughs> it affects everything about you. It affects all of life. So, 
So I can't stay that broad. I'll get a little more specific. You're with a brother in the Lord or a sister in the Lord this week. It affects that conversation. Who is the King of Glory? It's a great conversation to have with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. What is that? How does that affect you? Great coffee conversation. What does it mean for the husband to say, you're the king of glory? What does that mean for the wife to hear, you're the king of glory? Or the empty nester? Or the college student? What does it mean for the single young man or the single young woman in your season of life that he's the king of glory? What does it mean to the Christian seeking to serve Christ in the context of a local church that he's the king of glory? How does that affect how you show up? Does it affect? We can be casual, can't we? We can forget. We gather on a Sunday morning, we sing songs, we can can forget who the king of glory is. What does it mean to come here on a Sunday morning, Sunday after Sunday? The gathering of the bride of Christ on a Sunday morning. Yeah, maybe. You're answering the question who the king of glory is with your maybe. Do you understand that? Getting a little more specific, aren't we? Maybe I'll show up. Maybe I won't show up. Maybe I'll be on time. Maybe I won't be on time. Maybe, maybe I'm not trying to pick on you if you weren't on time this morning. Maybe I'm standing right here and I'm physically here and I'm not here. I'm answering the question, who is the king of glory? In that moment, aren't I? What does it mean for my distracted heart and my distracted culture and all the distractions around me? He's the king of glory. How does it affect my evangelism? Sharing the glories of Christ to a lost world. How does it affect your faith in God that he's the king of glory in what he's able to do? How does it affect the prayer meeting? How does it affect, well, how does it affect, do we go to the prayer meeting? How does it affect the corporate gathering of the saints coming together corporately to pray and seek God's face? How does it affect private prayer? Well, we could go on for a long time, couldn't we? It affects all of life, how you answer that question. So I close, I close like last week. I end with the prop, the big idea of the text. The question of the ages is who is this king of glory? How we answer that question has ramifications for all of life. The psalmist is telling us he's the creator, he's the Christ, he's the conqueror, he is the king of glory. Let's stand. Let's sing to the Lord.